0: The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier
1: podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea
2: is to uh, innovate, or else why? Why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let know, it create itself, really. I know I do, and I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things.
0: Love my fans. Just Michael Jackson.
1: Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello everyone, my name is Q, and welcome to episode 31 of the MJ Cast. Today we are speaking to author Mike Smallcomb of Making Michael, a new Michael Jackson biography that has recently been released. Today we are also joined by Jason Garcia, who is our mission control today. Jason, hello. Hello, how you doing, Q? I'm very well. You're joining us from Houston, Texas, I believe. That's right, all the way over here. And you are our mission control. You are filling in for Jamin today, Mm -hmm. doing all the technological stuff that I don't understand. You're recording it for us, and then we're going to get this sent to Jamin ASAP, so he'll be able to finish putting it together. But thank you very much for your help today. We both really appreciate it.
0: I'm very excited to be here, and... What well, best that to be with Mike today?
1: Absolutely. And and did you want to give a shout out to some Spanish-speaking listeners?
0: Oh, of course. I do speak Spanish a little bit. I'm trying to learn it as much as I can. Muchas gracias por acompañarnos aquí en el Cast en Español. Espero les guste esta entrevista que creo va a estar muy interesante. Well,
1: that sounds like you speak it very well. <laughs> not that you're learning it. I think you're trying to trick us. <laughs> well, yeah. So, Jason, we've been looking forward to sort of talking to you. You've you've been a listener of our show um, and you're a big Michael Jackson fan yourself. Did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a fan?
0: Of course. It's all about the dancing, you know. Uh, I started wanting to know how to do the moonwalk because everybody back in the 2000s seemed to be doing that, TV and music videos and stuff and i wanted to impress the ladies so i said i'm gonna do the moonwalk i'm gonna learn how to do this but i didn't know how and you know back then there was no youtube or anything like that it was an idea that i had uh, but it never materialized and nobody could teach me either so i just let it go for a while the only thing i knew was that michael jackson was the guy who invented the moonwalk that's what i knew and one day Later on, in September, they announced that they were going to have the concert for the 30th anniversary. So I said, oh, wow, maybe he's going to perform there. I had no clue. And they said, I'm going to get a VHS, because that's what we had, and I'm going to record it. And whatever it is that he does, I hope he does the moonwalk, or at least they show him doing it from an older video or something. Because I didn't know what it was. I really didn't know what it was. All I knew it was Michael was going to be in it. So I recorded it, and not only was the moonwalk there, it was the whole concert, Basically. And that's it. That I did the moonwalk. I started learning it. And then I was like, well, actually, that song is pretty awesome. And he has another move. And then I listened to the other songs. And then I could not stop listening to the rest of the songs and wanting to know what else has he done. And uh, there was more research and research. And I just, that's how it happened.
1: So the 30th anniversary, was it? It was, yes. That's, yeah, it's incredible. So many fans. That was the big moment that mm-hmm. sort of just brought it all together for them. Right. Fantastic. Yes. So grateful for those shows.
0: I still put into practice those moves I learned then.
1: So um, To get the ladies. <laughs> well, I already got my <laughs> ladies, so I'm alright now. <laughs> oh, okay. You said uh sometimes you order things online and then when they show up, like more Michael Jackson stuff, when they show up, yeah, she, they may be not impressed.
0: Not anymore. She's like again? What is that? You don't understand. I don't want to explain to you because you don't even gonna understand what I got now. <laughs>
1: That's funny. So you actually host a podcast yourself, don't you?
0: Correct. I have a podcast in Spanish that I have a co-host with, and we just ramble about current events and a lot of entertainment, news, and sometimes political and, and sports. So it's like a like a morning talk show, but it's a podcast, so you can
1: listen to it. All day long. Oh, did you want to let people know where they can find you online?
0: They can just Google Elder EJ El Show and it pops up right away. Or you can do the same thing on iTunes. We're also on Tuning and any other podcast app that you may have. Uh, just look it up and we're there. If you speak Spanish and want to know my opinion in certain subjects, then that, that'll be the podcast you want to listen to. Plus, you know, I make some jokes sometimes, so it's funny sometimes. <laughs>
1: Cool. Well, again, thank you for being our technical support today and for joining us on the MJCast for the first time.
0: No, thank you guys for inviting me. It's an honor and it's more of an honor because we will have a great author in this episode.
1: That's pretty good. And now I'd like to introduce everyone to Mike. Mike, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us from the middle of the night over there in England.
3: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. No problem at all. Yeah, it's uh, just just a half past twelve here. So um, nice and dark, cold as
1: always. My sun has uh, risen here in Perth this morning, so it's not dark here anymore.
3: Yeah, it's very <laughs> much dark here.
1: Not raining for once though. Ah, uh, well, I think we might have a bit of rain here in Perth today. It's. Um, I guess, autumn or heading into winter. So we're getting a a little bit of rain, thank goodness. And some cooler days, which I am very much enjoying. Everyone knows listening to the show that I hate summer. So I've always been counting down to winter. So I'm glad that it's pretty much finally here, except for the cold that I currently have. So my apologies to everyone for sounding like a Muppet today. I've had this horrendous cold all week and hopefully I'm at the tail end of it. So my apologies for, coughing and sneezing. And if I need to mute the microphone, trust me, it's for your comfort and sensitivity on board today. No problem. So we've got some questions, Mike, about your, your wonderful book. But first, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Um, yeah, sure.
3: <clears throat> As you know, I'm English, <laughs> but um, I'm also uh, half German. I spent uh, the first six years of my life living in Germany uh, before moving to England uh, with my family uh, my father's English, mother's German. Then we uh, we moved to Cornwall, down at the bottom of England, uh, where my father's originally from. And um, then eventually, uh, I went to study uh, English language at university. But, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer since my early teenage years. Um, you know, I've, I've always been passionate about books, writing, research. So uh, after I finished my degree, I moved to London, um, where I completed my journalist training. Um, and... After living in London, I then returned to the southwest of England. Joined uh, the team at Devon and Cornwall Media, but uh, yeah, aside from you know the the day job, um, I've pretty much dedicated much of the past five years of my life to you know delivering this account of Michael Jackson's career. So,
1: so do you think maybe there could be a German translation on the cards for making Michael? <laughs>
3: I don't think that's something I would be able to do personally, but, um, yeah, I'd love to, I've had a few requests, different languages, Spanish for one as well. Can't rule it out, but um, I don't think I'd be able to translate it. (laughs) Probably it'd take me a long time to do that. So, um, (laughs) get the experts to do that.
1: Fantastic. Um, so what sort of other writing experience have you had? So you've got a day job where you do a lot of writing as well. Yeah. Day job is obviously journalism.
3: So, um, I've been doing that for a good few years now, um, Obviously, writing is is my job, but, you know, writing books and uh, sort of something like to do my spare time.
1: So is Making Michael not your first book that you've written? It is my first book, yes. Okay. (laughs) Well, congratulations.
3: Yeah, thank you. Fortunately, my perfectionism got in the way a little bit, uh, a lot (laughs) longer than I envisaged to complete it. But uh, I suppose that can only be a good thing in the end. We've
1: we've heard that a, a few times from different authors. It's very hard to sort of stop and let it let it go to get it out there
3: oh sure yeah i mean overcoming my imperfectionism yeah i was always seeking to you know uncover new information and you know not only to do myself justice but you know michael jackson as well in the years you know after i started writing the book a few other books began as you know began to come out about michael with a bit more focus you know on the legacy and the cultural impact um so then i had to change my approach and um i didn't want to cut corners or leave any stones unturned and you know that is why it took so long to complete but i didn't really want to let it go as, yes, <laughs> as you've heard from many other authors it's not it's not something you want to let go unless it's you feel it's totally 100%
1: right yeah, there has been a number of books coming out since his passing, which do concentrate on his his art and legacy. So I had a question, which was, why another biography on Michael Jackson? What does making Michael offer readers that other recent releases and older biographies does not? Well, I started this in 2010. And at that point, obviously i mean
3: apart from um or jr early obviously his book has got a lot of personal personal life focus as well but also a lot of career focus but apart from that book there weren't any you know the books that we've we've had come out since then obviously joe vogel's book being the main one they hadn't been written by then so you know i, I wanted to be the first to write any sort of book on michael jackson's career with you know a focus on the music but um so yeah in, in 2010 when I started that, I wanted to be the first. Obviously, a few books did come out during my writing process. Then I knew that you know I had to change my approach, delve deeper into the career of Michael Jackson than ever before. So, you know, to offer readers a glimpse of the real Michael. Part of the reason why it did take me five years is because I had to, I had to try and make the book totally different to those other biographies that you have mentioned that, you know, came out.
0: Okay, Mike, I wanted to ask you, now that you're talking about that you wanted to make it different, tell us a little bit about your writing process over those past five years that took you to put this project together.
3: The starting point, you know, was to gather all the information that was already out there. Um, You know, online forums, court transcripts, web interviews, old magazine and newspaper articles and, you know, bring all that under one umbrella. But um, I knew that, you know, the only way I could really go behind the scenes and deliver an accurate and most importantly fresh account of Michael's career was to contact as many people who had worked with him as possible. In the end, over 60 of Michael's collaborators agreed to be interviewed, which was fantastic. I was both shocked and pleasantly surprised at how open and generous those individuals were with their time and insights. In terms of the writing process, the book was mostly written in in Cornwall, where I live at the moment, and London, where I've previously lived. And also in California, when I was there, a couple of trips to do my interviews, um, I twice traveled over there uh, to conduct some of the interviews face-to-face and uh, to get a feel for the city where yeah, Michael made most of his music, so that that was really important for me. But, you know, as well as interviewing while I was in uh, Los Angeles, you know, I visited some of the recording studios where Michael worked, Westlake where Thriller was recorded, and Record Plant where Blood on the Dance Floor and Invincible were made. But um, you know, in terms of the, the writing process, it took me much longer to you know, Reese, as I said, it took me lot, much longer than I anticipated because I was trying to discover new information and you know, take different paths in that attempt to make you know the most complete anthology possible.
0: Right. Was it uh one of the focus of the book for you to concentrate on his work schedule? You use the chronology very well, the dates, there's an order for yeah, those.
3: That's it, yeah. I tried to make each that's what I tried to, you know, make completely unique from anything else. I tried to make each album sort of like a journey dedicating well each chapter that's dedicated to an album. Make that album like a story or that chapter a story in itself. So like you said, the chronology was really important. That was so difficult to to research. You know when, for example, dangerous during what period you know, Jam was made or Heal the World. Mm-hmm. I, t- I tried to make it like a linear narrative to each album,
0: right? So, the timeline,
3: as if yes, as if readers are there with Michael on you know his journey in recording and completing each album. Tremendously difficult to do that, but um, I got there in the end.
0: It was wonderful. I really enjoyed uh, making me feel like I understand how everything came together and like I understood the whole process. Sometimes I read other books where they mix all the dates together and I don't get it. But with your book, it was like I understood when it was fall, when it was summer. It's like I'm reading a Michael Jackson diary.
3: Yeah, that that was the most important. You know, when I when I started the book, that was my real goal. That was the biggest challenge that I faced. It was incredibly difficult to get all that information. But uh, I got there in the end. It was important to follow a linear narrative, you know, with twists and turns, you know, to make readers feel like they were there for the ride with Michael, like a fly on the wall almost. Right.
1: What was the publishing process like for you after you'd actually finished putting it all together? I self-published it.
3: I decided to do so from the beginning because, you know, although although it was costly, I chose to self-publish this uh, rather than seek a traditional publisher for one simple reason, and that was control. Because wanted to fully realise my creative vision and not that of somebody else. You know, to have the final say on everything from, you know, the title to the content, the length of the book, the layout, the front cover design and the photos inside. So I was sort of the managing director of this from the beginning. Obviously I had it all professionally put together for me in terms of, you know, design, edits and all that. And it was very expensive. So was, as an author of a Michael Jackson book, I've had people say, you know, that you're doing this for money leave Michael Jackson alone you know authors are always in it for the money but I'm not I'm not unlikely to make much money from this at all because I've self-published this through the fact that I love writing um, you know I'm a Michael Jackson fan and it's just a book that I wanted to write from the beginning as I've said before because a book like this did not exist so it's not it's not about money for me it's just you know a labour of love
1: that's something we've heard uh, echo from a number of authors that people may say something like that that you're trying to just cash in on Michael's name but no there's actually probably only a few authors in the world that make very good money from books and they are the biggest names out there so no you don't tend to write a book to earn money that's for sure well no not not well if you if you're published traditionally like some of the other authors
3: have been then there is a chance of that but self-publishing obviously it's more difficult because you know marketing budget isn't massive and um obviously i have to pay everything up front to self-publish the book which was tremendously costly because obviously i want to have it done properly as if it was done by a traditional publisher you you spend so long on something like this that you know you want it to be done properly so that did cost me a lot of money to do but yeah definitely not about the money (laughs) it's just the labor of love
1: so speaking of labor of love like were you a, a fan of michael before and what was your fan journey sort of like
3: Yes, I was a fan because in truth, I couldn't have written this book you know if I wasn't inspired by Michael's music. You know after Michael's death, I did discover that you know there wasn't a book based solely on you know 45 year career of a man many believed to be the greatest entertainer of all time. But like I said, I, I could not have spent five years writing you know, this sort of book about Michael Jackson if I wasn't a fan. In terms of my fan journey, that began for me in the Dangerous era. My sister, the first album that she was given was Dangerous. So as she listened to it, you know, I grew to love the songs on Dangerous and um, the differences in the in the way those songs were produced. And obviously, I didn't realise it at the time, but um, that was down to the production, the different sounds. And Dangerous is the album that really got me hooked. On Michael Jackson and also the uh, 1992 October 1992 Bucharest concert as well which was shown um, living in Germany and it was shown on cable over there so watching that live as well so it was it was that dangerous era that really got me into Michael Jackson to this day dangerous is still my uh, favorite album of Michael's
1: that's awesome it was pretty much a very similar story for me actually it was the black or white single That definitely was like, wow, what is this? And then the video, and then the album, and then that concert when that was shown on TV here, simulcast on the radio, and yeah, that's a great story. Thank you so much. Did you ever get a chance to see Michael when he toured on the History Tour? Perhaps.
3: No, I didn't. I did have tickets to the very first show of This Is It. It was on the uh, it was for the opening night on July the eighth, yeah. which was later pushed back by five days. But um, no, I never got to. I didn't get to um, Wembley to uh, see Michael on the History Tour, unfortunately.
1: So you've had a fairly long fan journey as well, and something that sounds quite similar to a lot of us. Yeah, definitely, from from the very beginning, since I was very young. Obviously, living in
3: the UK and Germany, especially during the history era, that was really sort of the market for Michael Jackson, was Europe. History and blood on the dance floor. The single went to number one in the UK. He was yeah. just absolutely huge, even after all that happened. I think it was America, obviously, where he lost some of that fan base. Maybe not fan base, but, um, you know, fickle people who... Um, Decided not to listen anymore, but in, in Europe, definitely, you know, he became bigger than anything during that history period.
1: Do you think things would have been differently if he sort of toured more in the US after the 90s? What, in terms of popularity?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, as we, as you may know, he had that offer to um, tour around America for the Invincible to promote Invincible. Yeah. But um, obviously, 9/11 happened, and many artists cancelled their tours. It was a decision by, see, Michael and Sony to tap into, especially Australia, New Zealand, and Europe during the History era, rather than go back to the States. Well, then again, he d- he did he did do two shows in Hawaii during the History tour, which were absolutely huge. Yeah. So I don't think that would have been a problem, to be honest. I mean, the millions, tens of millions of Michael Jackson fans in America would still have gone. Just because a few thousand were put off, that wouldn't have made a difference at all. Yeah. So yeah, I think it would have been great if he had done America during the history era, but um, wasn't to be.
1: Growing up through throughout that era experiencing, especially the whole history era, blood on the dance floor era, I sort of felt bad for America in a way. Because like, well, we were getting everything over in Australia anyway, and I know Europe got so much uh even things like the ghosts box set was never even released in america no. and i always felt bad for the american fans because we were getting these really great products and awesome things and they sort of missed out on a few things
3: yeah blood on the dance floor it was released in america but you wouldn't have known it with the promotion <laughs> but yeah history and blood on the dance floor massively promoted in down under in australia and new zealand and across europe so yeah those american fans unfortunately did miss out on that which is a shame but uh that's just to be the honest, way it was that's just yeah obviously the english tabloids were always very harsh on michael i think there was a fear at sony that his popularity had diminished in the united states unfortunately which wouldn't have been the case because the tens of millions of hardcore fans were still there and always would have been and still are and still are I'm delighted to have with us one of
2: america's youngest institutions five of our very favorite people who, in fact, are doing us the honor of letting us celebrate with them their 10th anniversary in show business. A great welcome, gang, for the Jacksons. So if you remember these songs, I never can say goodbye, Don't make the claim. Never can say goodbye Even though the pain and heartaches Seem to follow me wherever I go Though so I try and strike to hide my feet Since they always seen the show Then you try to say you're leaving me And I always never say no Tell me why Is it so Don't wanna let you go
4: This is Janneke, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. If you're after a leading magazine on all things Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, check out Jackson Source. Jackson Source publishes Jackson Magazine annually, and it offers a full retrospect of the previous year covering all the news, highlights, and events of the first and next generation of Jacksons in the form of articles, interviews, photos, categories, and exclusive contributions from Jackson family members. Jackson Magazine is now available and features articles about The Message in Michael's music, The Legacy of The Jackson 5, exclusive interviews with Tito, Jermaine, Taj, Terrell and TJ, as well as exclusive pictures of Tito, Jermaine, Jafar and Majesty, and loads more. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, at Jackson Source. Thank
0: you.
4: Thank you.
2: Thank you
1: hi this is rob hoffman studio
3: musician and engineer with michael jackson and you're listening to the mj cast
1: so speaking of lots of travel and things like that you traveled a lot sort of putting this book together you interviewed over 60 collaborators that's a lot of sources um, yeah
3: 65 oh yeah.
1: wow how, how did you find people when you sort of approached them to to share their stories and sort of approaching everyone, did you have any roadblocks and hit any brick walls that you had to sort of overcome or move past?
3: Well, firstly, I didn't really want to rely too much on third-party sources for the book because obviously that was all out there in the public domain. So I really wanted to try and speak to as many people as I could, as many collaborators as I could. I must have contacted literally everybody that's worked with (laughs) them, or at least 90% of them in you know, an attempt to, to speak to as many of those people so they could speak about their experiences with me in terms of getting the interviews it was about networking really and again that's why it took a, a long time because you speak to certain engineers or producers or managers or whatever and then they can recommend you to you know others and sort of try and build up that trust so that's mainly how I managed to you know in- increase that from 0 to 65 just through recommendations and networking and gaining you know, the, the trust of these these collaborators.
1: And were there any sort of people that you weren't able to speak to that you really wished you could have? In terms, uh,
3: I wanted to speak to Frank DeLeo. Um, oh, yeah. But he, yeah, he passed before I was able to, unfortunately. Um, obviously, Frank was Michael's manager during such a uh, important and key period. Obviously, the aftermath of Thriller and um, trying to record a worthy follow-up to Thriller. And then, of course, trying to better Thriller and the uh, bad promotion campaign and all the pr that came out about michael that we know so so much about um during the bad era so frank would have been a fantastic interviewee but uh, fortunately he passed um i would have liked to have spoken to rod temperton but i went to rod's house in what, apartment luxury apartment in um sorry rod uh, in uh, in chelsea london i spoke to rod's wife but uh, rod just doesn't do doesn't like to do interviews he's he only ever did the um, interview for the special editions of uh, Off the War and Thriller and a BBC Radio 2 interview. You can count the interviews that he's done about anything on one hand, but uh, so <laughs> even I wasn't, as a fellow Englishman wasn't able to <laughs> get him to, to speak to me. But obviously Rod would have been fantastic. But he did, I did you know, use his, as a third-party source from um, what he said on those Off the War and Thriller special editions. But
1: yeah, Rod Teberton um, Frank DeLeo, I think, probably those two. And then I noticed in the back of the book, you've got every source there listed so well. It was incredibly thorough. I actually don't remember a book where I've seen it so thorough where you've listed all your sources. And and if it wasn't an interview that you did personally, you've said where you got the information from and for example like um information you got from say twitter or interviews with karen Fay, you've got in there maybe stuff from court transcripts as well i believe you probably used in in some parts
3: yes if i haven't done i'm not going to i'm not going to claim that um (laughs) someone else's interview is mine i mean that's i've i've seen that in other books you know where people have listed certain interviews their own and um I would never do that because you know, they've worked hard to get those interviews. So of course, I want to meticulously note all my sources where I've got everything from, mainly and mainly because for accuracy, so fans realise, you know, that, that quote, this information, and where they can see for themselves exactly where that came from. But like you said, it was it's, it's a big old um, source section, and again, that also took up a big chunk of my time. But uh, it was important for me to do that properly, definitely.
0: Mike, out of the people you spoke with, are there uh, a few names that stand out whose contributions really helped shape this book?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm grateful to all of them, but um, I suppose a few did stand out in probably Jimmy Jam, you know, one half the songwriting production team, which is more American number ones than any other in history. Obviously, Jimmy Jam played a key role in the production of the History album, and he was such a great help for me. For my research for the chapter on that album, um, Sandy Gallen as well, Michael's longest-serving manager, who managed Michael through some of the you know most difficult years. Obviously, there was the uh, the dangerous era, and then what happened after that, and then history as well. Sandy filled in a lot of gaps. Um, he was brilliant. About a three-hour interview, I think that was Brad Buxer. You know, arguably one of Michael's closest, and most trusted musical collaborators. Brad filled in lots of gaps as well, especially on Blood on the Dance Floor, which was the most difficult chapter to write for me. Bruce Swidian, Quincy Jones, a legendary engineer, who was another of Michael's most trusted collaborators. Bruce was brilliant, you know, almost became friends, <laughs> you know, e-friends, e let's call it, via phone conversations. He was just Bruce's lovely, amazing, gentle, fascinating, you know, man. He's just, that was phenomenal. Billy Patrell, obviously a key member of the production team, which created the Dangerous album with Michael, produced Earth Song as well, which was created during Dangerous, but ended up on history. Uh, Fields, Michael's Lawyer, other honourable mentions, Steve Porcaro, uh, who wrote Human Nature, Buzz Cohen, very close friend of Michael's, uh, Michael Durham Prince, Dieter Weisner, the, um, or Wisner, Michael's German manager from um, a very brief period, 2003. Um, he was quite helpful for that period as well in terms of the Marvel acquisition and things like that. With that, I should not forget um, Matt Forger is probably <laughs> the most important in terms of who I interviewed, actually. Hours of conversations, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of emails, um, wrote the forward. Matt was, he just has this photographic memory. And he just, oh, Matt was incredible i'd say matt was definitely the most important in terms of you know feeding me information but yeah just so grateful for all of those collaborators for giving me their time they were fantastic i wouldn't have been able to write it without them obviously because they were the ones who were with Mike on that journey
1: incredible journey and i think um for listeners like hearing some of those names even just some of them is incredible to to learn from but Yeah, there's a huge list, like all of those names that you just mentioned, and then so many more. The amount that we learn from them is just incredible.
3: Yeah, obviously, I couldn't speak to Michael himself. So um, the next best thing is those collaborators who were there in the studio, you know, recording those albums with Michael. (laughs) So in terms of writing a book like this, they were key, very key. And I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to do my own interviews, get my own new information because like you said we have had a lot of biographies come out lately so i wanted to make something completely you know unique new information so that was so important for me because this is you know about you know trying to make like i said because i've self-published that means that you know this i'm trying to do myself justice and michael jackson so i try to you know be as accurate thorough as possible it's not just about having a publisher say can you do a michael jackson biography in turning it around in one year and saying whatever i'll rush it here it is it's it's about the art for me it's it's about the art of writing for me to to make this as accurate and thorough as possible
0: mike uh, so when you first started writing or you got the idea did you get any kind of doubts about it at the beginning that maybe people were not going to talk to you or you always thought this is what i'm going to do and no problem
3: i didn't have doubts because i thought if i could relay it to to the collaborators that you know i wanted to do this sort of positive book on michael's career that you know they would speak and it turns out that that wasn't the case luckily um so i didn't have doubts as such the the only doubts i did have um you know at times you know being such a long process you know you, you do get down at times about things when things don't work out or you're stuck on a certain chapter or you know, and you're writing at four or five in the morning, <laughs> you do right. get some doubts creep into your mind about certain things, but you just got to persevere and um, that's what I did.
0: So in this case, uh, you mentioned Blood on the Dance Floor. Why was Blood on the Dance Floor uh, difficult for you?
3: Because, like you said before, obviously you, you notice that the chapters are done in a sort of linear narrative and mm-hmm. Blood on the Dance Floor, as we know, the five new tracks at the beginning, those tracks were you know, originally written and recorded for the Dangerous in History albums. And the Blood on the Dance Floor album was. Sony wanted Michael to do an album, and he'd he hand around. You know, Michael wanted to do something that was quick. It was originally supposed to be an EP of just five new songs, which suited Michael. But then Sony wanted to add those remixes on the end which, again, as, as we all know, that Michael wasn't massively keen on. But again, yeah, getting, getting back to why it was difficult, I, di- I didn't really focus on the remixes at all, to be honest. Um, I focused on those five new tracks. Is it scary in Ghosts? Now, that was crazy, trying to figure out those, because many thought that, you know, well, obviously, the ideas did come from what became Ghosts uh, when Michael started the Adams Family Values uh, movie. Is this scary with Mick Garris in 93? It's just, it's just trying to find out, you know, the evolution of those two songs in particular is it scary and ghosts but just the lack of information out there um because it was such a small team of people working on that album it's just incredibly difficult like, i really wanted to go to town on blood on the dance floor because it's often overlooked you know as an album you know as part of michael's catalog
0: right well i think you did a great job with that one and giving all that information and the fact that telling us where they actually recorded the songs and for us that like the tidbits of details and these fun facts, we love. I loved it.
3: Yeah, obviously, I didn't want to get into any studio technicality. You know, when doing all this, because at the end of the day, unless unless you're a real studio tech, you don't really care about what board was used to. know what mixing console was used to record each song but um obviously bruce whittian did a cracking book on on that in the studio with michael jackson Mm -hmm. you know to cover that um yeah but obviously i wanted to go into the making of the songs and making the albums but without the studio tech just more the stories you know the way michael was the way he recorded in the studio you know fun stories
1: right I, i really learned a few things that i did not know for many eras uh for like Off the Wall, the original cover shoot at the Griffith Observatory. I had seen those pictures, but I had no idea that's where that was. So that was really cool to find out. Um, I loved the the Dangerous Era chapter about learning just how incredibly busy Michael was in the Dangerous Era with the production of the album and then so many other projects, I think. And for me, that was basically the the, um, album that, sort of was my first fan album for me so learning so much about that era was incredible the history era which was a favorite of mine i loved hearing about that and then yeah blood on the dance floor as well learning how michael became more hands-on with his last few albums like really getting in there so yeah you uncovered some really great stuff which was really refreshing like not only am I sort of reading, and some stuff is very familiar because I've maybe heard that interview on TV or read that article that you got the source from, but then there is new stuff in there as well that really just kept it going so well. You mentioned um,
3: some of the stuff you may have read before. I wanted to include that as well because I wanted to make a, you know a complete anthology. So for so the people who haven't who haven't you know read that interview particular interview, so I wanted to include everything that I thought was you know relevant to my version of my book. Yeah, history, history was my, I think that was my most fun chapter to write, I think. Blood on the Dance was the most difficult, but I think history was the most fun for
1: me. What did you sort of learn that surprised you the most as you sort of did five years' worth of research? Not just about Michael's work, but about Michael as well. Probably his... I mean,
3: we all knew he was very competitive, um, a perfectionist, but he was quite cutthroat in terms of, you know, if he... He wanted to get to the top and, you know, there wasn't a lot that was going to stop him. So I think, you know, yeah, there was a cutthroat, you know, shrewdness to him.
1: Is ruthless a word that you could use?
3: Yeah, ruthless, I think. But um, if you want to be the greatest entertainer of all time, then you need some of that in your personality, for sure. I mean, obviously, Michael was 90% of the people I spoke to said he was you know, literally the, the nicest human being that, you know, they ever met. So he was an, you know, amazing person. But as we've heard before, he he had that side to him, especially in in, in the business world. He knew what he was doing. He, people thought he was naive and childlike and joking, but he knew he could switch on. To, he could switch to another side, and he knew exactly what he was doing, both in business and music.
1: Maybe not so much in finance. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, you say that,
3: but um. The reason Michael was able to spend beyond his means for so many years was because of buying ATV. Oh, for sure, yeah. So Michael used that as collateral for all these loans, and all he had to do was sell it, and he would have been back in the uh, back in the black. So, but he, towards the end he just didn't want to sell that catalogue. If things got really bad, he obviously would have, but um, that you know that was the last thing that he wanted to do. He wanted to keep hold of that catalogue.
1: Like you mentioned, he was maybe like had a bit of debt, but he was very asset rich.
3: Yes. Towards the end, he was cash poor, but very much asset rich. You know, all those assets that he did have really were key in keeping him afloat. And, you know, having those assets in the first place was down to his shrewdness in terms of business.
0: Right. And he got those, uh, the catalog right after Thriller uh, with all that money that he got. And talking about then the Thriller's era, how do you think that the success of Thriller affected Michael
3: and all his work? It affected him in two ways, really. Um, obviously, Thriller catapulted him into becoming the most famous person in the world. So he you know, did want to come out of the, the public eye for a little while. In terms of work, trying to Thriller, trying to you know, in terms of both sales and the quality of the album, that sort of he was obsessed with that bad album and trying to make it as good as possible. So the success of Thriller. Well, I suppose it's not necessarily negative because it just drove Michael into trying to make something even better. But there was some criticism in some quarters of the media that Bad didn't top Thriller. But um, I quote in my book, did uh, Picasso and Michelangelo ever trace over their best work? No. Yes, Thriller may have been the peak in sales, but Bad was still phenomenal, dangerous history. Still phenomenal sales. So,
1: How do you think his artistic legacy has been handled since his passing? I noticed that you finished the book pretty much right at his passing and then you address in the afterword, I think it is, some of the, the posthumous mm. albums, but you you didn't go into those in this case. So how do you think his artistic legacy has been handled? I think it's been handled well
3: mostly. The state has made a phenomenal amount of money and... Obviously, some fans are going to be against you know, the ways that they've gone about doing that, but there was debt to clear. But yeah, those albums. Personally, I don't agree with those albums because of the way Michael was. You know, his songs that didn't come out didn't come out for a reason. You know, either because he didn't like them enough or they weren't ready. So, you know, for, for, for other producers to go in and change those unfinished tracks after Michael's death, I don't. Never. Again, I can't say for sure, but I just, I just don't think Michael would have wanted that. I can't. I can't say for sure, of course. I mean, none of us really know. But um, I just decided not to. I decided to cover Michael Michael Jackson's career in life and not in death. It may have been okay to release some demos and some you know things like that, which which were released on the Ultimate Collection in 2004. The de- demos Michael's did come out in um, Michael's lifetime. You know, with with or without Michael's. Uh, well, Sony probably pushed through, some of it through. Um, obviously, because Michael owed them two albums after invincible number ones and um ultimate collection so sony probably tagged some new demos onto the ultimate collection but um yeah i, I didn't really i wasn't really interested in going into the whole cassia tracks thing to be honest
1: well since you brought that up actually um mm. the detail that you've put in tracing the evolution of albums like from say you know oh this was going to be a greatest hits with a couple of new tracks and then ended mm. up being you know double album and it took years to to record songs that would you know be in the archives and then he'd bring things back like since you brought the cassette tracks up and it's not addressed in the book i'm just curious because you've laid out such an incredible timeline of how albums were made how credible do you think it is that he recorded an entire album worth of tracks in the casio's basement in such a short amount of time Like to me i just can't wrap my head around that knowing the history of michael yeah. and how he put stuff together like it just doesn't one and one doesn't add up to two in that case to me.
3: No, Michael turned up at the Casio's in um, August 2007, and he was there for three months, like you said. He did record with you know portable equipment at his Las Vegas properties, in hotels with um, Buxer and Michael Prince. Obviously, I can't say for sure what recording equipment was down in that basement of the Casio's, but like you said, it took Michael so long to record an album. He wouldn't not have recorded a full album of tracks in that basement in three months with you know portable equipment. The portable equipment was there to um, you know record vocals, ideas, but obviously to finish an album you'd have to go into a major studio like you know record one, etc. to really polish it off and then have it mastered.
1: And I, I know that he actually did do legitimate recording with Casios. I know that um, yeah, some, yeah. definitely for Thriller 25 there was some legitimate recording, but. I just cannot wrap my head around and a full album completely finished in three months in a basement with equipment. I just can't envision that, especially with no evidence out there of that happening. And I, I don't want to drag this on because we've got so many other things we want to talk about. But I just thought that was really interesting seeing the the process laid out so clearly in your book, how Michael actually did put albums together yeah
3: and obviously my uh, brad bucks and michael prince who were michael's main collaborators you know for, after invincible they, it was those two who were really there for almost all the music that was recorded they weren't in that basement either um who knows if there really was equipment down there well like you said there was there were some bits recorded but michael was quite slow at recording vocals uh so, you know bits and bobs would have been recorded but not even a full song i doubt to be honest
1: yeah, like even a lot of the stuff that maybe came up through different albums, they were songs that he worked on for years and years, mm. but they were only frameworks and demos and very incomplete. Yeah, that's it. Um, did you have to approach the estate executives before, before putting this project together or releasing it? I did uh, contact Karen Langford, Frank's assistant. Um, at one point I was contemplating,
3: you know, trying to, Joe Vogel did get some help from the estate with his book but I just decided not to um, I didn't want to be sort of at the behest of the estates in terms of wanting to maybe take things out and etc. They suggested you know one of their people reading through the whole book so I just decided not to get involved with the estates and just sort of go it alone and uh, continue being in full control <clears throat> and being able to you know cover what I wanted to really cover because if the state had read it then you know there's a high chance that there's something that they would want to take out
1: obviously <laughs> i can probably think of a few things <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so there you go
0: when it comes to michael's uh, film interests uh, mm. I've read uh, many books where they o- only say that, and that's that's all they say. But in your book, you went and told us titles and gave us uh, names of characters he wanted to play, which I didn't even know, and that was very interesting. Uh, did you make an effort to actually tell that part?
3: The the main focus of the book is the albums, but I also wanted to touch you know upon the tours, the films as heavily as I could without making ten thousand word, ten thousand page book. I can't really remember how the sort of film information came together. I think it was from speaking to people like Buzz Cohen and Dieter Visner and Sandy Gallen who you know, just asking them that information because, you know, we as we all know, Michael that was his big dream to really crack the movie industry. Mm-hmm. So it's just questions that you know I ended up asking some of those collaborators, and then obviously eliciting that new information from them, such as you know Peter Pan in '83, um, Spielberg, and then um, when Sally Sandy Gallen came in, and obviously the Sony contract, which you know involved a clause you know for movie making, such as as you say um, Phantom of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know those things that I didn't know about either you know, getting that information. Yeah, I mean, that was that was phenomenal even for me to, you know, find out some of those roles that Michael really wanted to play.
0: Well, yeah, I thought it was a great section, uh, the movies part, because as a fan, I always heard about it, but I never really know how is it that he wanted to do it since the beginning, and he never did it again after the whiz. And it always bothered me to know he never even tried or what, but in your book, you specify how every time he tried, something happened, and that was awesome. Thank you.
3: Yeah, I mean... It was it was incredible i don't it was just incredible to think that 1993 michael was on you know two big drives there was the movies on one side and there was the other side of sort of trying to relate more to the public so there was a big sort of pr campaign to try and make michael more accessible um so that was something that michael's manager sandy Gallen put together in early 1993 that's why we had oprah super bowl um and all that and then there's also um trying to break into the movie industry and then obviously what happened with the Chandler um, situation shut all that down and then 10 years later Michael again was working with his management on the MJ Universe project to try and become more accessible by doing all these you know signings publicity tours etc as well as the movies once again and then suddenly we have the Arviso thing so that was I thought that was very strange how that was shut down twice by those you know two similar accusations.
1: Even hearing about the Peter Pan film concept, which I Mm. guess that, and then Hook because we'd always sort of, um, well, growing up, I'd heard that, you know, Michael was meant to be in Hook. But then reading your book, there was actually sort of two separate projects from Spielberg that sort of, I guess, got confused over time into one mm. project and that sort of, yeah, for me that really cleared that up. I was hoping there'd be more information about the Midnight project, the film project, but that oh, only got yes, a, yeah. a brief mention in your mm. book. Yes,
3: um, well, in terms of Peter Pan, um, the idea, was Spielberg was obviously impressed with Michael's work on the E.T. album and as we, as we know, Peter Pan Michael loved Peter Pan Spielberg knew that and Peter Pan it was a very Spielberg sort of character in terms of film as I explain in the book you know, for certain reasons Spielberg never got Peter Pan off the ground um, in the early to mid 80s finally he did but the concept changed with Hook and in 97, Michael gave an interview, you know, where he said quite clearly that, you know, Spielberg broke his heart by casting Robin Williams in that role. That was, yeah, that was interesting. But the whole Midnight thing? Yeah, obviously um, Anton first passed away. So that sort of puts an end to that. And then Michael was incredibly busy with Dangerous Tour and all those projects that he did in 92, 93. Obviously, the Dangerous Tour was the number one priority because, you know, to to promote that album. And then Michael would have, you know, really gone about trying to break that. You know, into the movie industry after the Dangerous Tour. But unfortunately, never got around to doing that. That's how history came about.
0: When you talked about the Marvel acquisition, that was very important uh, read right there because it actually made me go off and think million other things, how maybe his life would have changed if he would have actually gotten that acquisition, seeing how Marvel released Iron Man in 2008 and made a whole bunch of money and one of the reasons Michael all the late stuff was because he didn't have that much money and I think that acquisition would have I don't know what would have happened it made me really wonder what could happen if he gotten those right
3: yeah (laughs) I mean after recording Invincible Michael was really ready to move forward press on with realizing that movie dream and also you know expanding his business empire and marvel would have been you know one side to that and obviously maintaining sony Sony atv on the other but yes in in 2009 marvel was bought by disney for uh, four billion and you know film franchises such as spider-man iron man like you said and the avengers they've made billions of dollars in revenue so you know who knows what could have happened there but as dita business said you know michael was right he knew what was coming because you know of the success of those franchises so that would have been, as you said, it would have been fascinating to see what would have happened. Michael really wanted that catalogue, Marvel, but um, it was never to be. There was a, it was a setback for him, but if he ever suffered a setback, he would just focus his energy on onto something else. So it just wasn't to be with Marvel.
0: It just made me think a lot of things.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many different, different scenarios that could have happened. I mean, what would have happened if the Chandler thing hadn't come up? But then we wouldn't have had history. Michael often tried to turn you know negatives into positives. Who knows?
0: You're right thank you thank you for that now I feel better now I'm calm <laughs> <laughs> but
3: what, yeah well, unfortunately what well, it is what it is unfortunately but I as I say towards the end of the book the controversies in Michael's life the eccentricities they all came together to make Michael Jackson who he was almost that side to him made him even bit you know even bigger just just unique sort of mysterious star I just think in the end all these elements came together the talent the music the controversies the personality to make Michael Jackson possibly the most famous person to ever live don't necessarily think some of the you know eccentricities it was just Michael's personality and it worked and people adored him for it that's why we love him that's right
0: Yeah, Mike, so there's a section in the book, some sections that I I always feel uneasy about when I read biographies about Michael, and that's the part Mm. of the, the accusations, both of them. Did you think of a way to approach those, or was it hard, or how did you approach that?
3: I, I, I didn't really want to go too deeply into those those two periods, those two accusations, because we had a fantastic book from um, Aphrodite Jones, Conspiracy, that covered the Barviso. Um, we you know we've read all that. We've that's been covered. chandler has been covered by Tara Borelli, GQ. I sort of included bits of that to sort of help to set the scene, because I couldn't just um, you know I couldn't just go from um, Michael doing Invincible. And then suddenly he turns up in Bahrain to you know how could I do Invincible and then Bahrain without sort of just touching upon what happened in between just to sort of set the scene and give some background information. But um as you've read you know most of that is just you know there's nothing really new in my book about the Chandler and Arviso cases. It's just to sort of help to set the scene and to right. bridge the gaps.
0: Did you think that reading the book people were gonna go back and try to listen to some of the tracks?
3: How did you? <clears throat> yeah, work? definitely. I mean learning. I'd like to think that most fans will learn some new information about Michael and the making of his albums and, you know, the songs from reading the book. So, you know, I'd, I'd love for them to be able to go back in and listen to songs with you know, a new perspective and think, well, maybe I didn't know that. And then go back and listen and think, ah, you know, to try and relate information in the book to the music. That would be fantastic if, you know, that is the outcome. That'd be brilliant. Definitely something I'd be proud of if that is the case.
0: Well, I definitely went back and listened to a lot of the tracks, so yep. That's brilliant to hear.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: So it's a very complete book. But did you have any stories that didn't make the final book?
3: Yeah, there are a few. I mean, obviously, I didn't leave anything out. But there's definitely nothing that I left out because you know that I really wanted to include because I would have because it, it, it would have been my decision. Luckily. Yeah, that's partly why i wanted to self-publish because i wanted i didn't want a publisher to turn around and say you're not putting that in you're not putting this in because we don't want it to be in there but um i'm what i'm going to do is i'm going to um publish some of my interviews with collaborators in full on my website because you know some of them are hours long so i hope that people would enjoy those you know to see them in full so yeah maybe there'll be a couple of bits and bobs
0: awesome can't wait for those
3: yeah so Keep an eye on that. Yeah, that would be great. Be like a reading a couple of new books in itself, I think, some of the new
1: <laughs> very long Can some. Never learn too much.
3: Nope.
4: This is Guest, the author of The Child of Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ cast.
1: I just wanted to say, yeah, thank you for the book. Like, I really enjoyed it. It's getting added to my to buy collection because I've got a physical book library in my house, which I love my real books that I can hold in my hand. So it's on my wish list to get a physical copy. I look forward to it. It's a beautiful book. The, the cover is gorgeous. You must have been so happy with the cover of it.
3: Yeah, the cover was, again, luckily I was in control of picking what image I wanted. Um, the cover was so important for me. The reason I chose that cover is because, to start off with, that photo was taken by Sam Emerson, very talented photographer who took the image for the uh, bad front cover. Sam took some shots of Michael during the making of the Black or White video. The reason I chose that image is because from a personal point of view, Dangerous is my favourite era, my favourite album so I wanted to choose one from that era I just think he looks fantastic. Many say, you know, he should have stopped surgery after Thriller and all this, but I just think he looks great though. I think he looks like a real superstar, the long hair. Yeah. You know, he just just looks very radiant and I just love that image, deep in thought. So yeah, I was very happy. And Sam, very happy with what we did with that image, that cover and the gold which is good because it's his fantastic photography and he was delighted with the outcome. So that was important.
1: You would have loved, um, I think it was last year, that there was a YouTube leak of sort of behind-the-scenes filming of Black or White. and Yes. oh, Some incredible footage came out and it would have been pretty much exactly like when this photo was taken, really, on the set. Yes, on, yeah, I included that video. I did a, a, um, gave away half of the Dangerous chapter on my
3: website and actually embedded that video in in that article so <laughs> 18 minutes long i think cracking footage karen faye you know doing makeup on michael and michael just love it you know laughing and joking and you know these little leaks are fantastic for the fans. obviously we had the um recent leak of uh is this scary
1: yeah for me that was you know a dream to have seen what came out like what came together in 1993 and Mm. then when that came out that was just an absolute dream come true for me (laughs) yeah I just wish it had come out when I was doing my research doing Blood and the Dance for Album chapter was very
3: difficult but I managed to catch up with Mick Garris who was the Stan Winston of the 93 version Um, so Mick filled in all the gaps eventually but he was one of my last interviewees so (laughs) I waited a long time for that interview
0: what about the title of the book? Did you struggle with the title on this one? or you? Yeah, like...
3: massively, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted obviously something quite short and the subtitle just goes a little bit more into it. But see, Making Michael is double M.
2: Right.
3: Not, not only that, I wanted to, as we've spoken before, the, the sort of layout of the book and really sort of emphasize that this is a career focus. So, you know, Making Michael the making of Michael I just had a little play on paper with some titles um, and then the subtitle inside the career of Michael Jackson you know just to try and give you know the impression that you know this is going slightly deeper into the career of Michael Jackson than other books so that was sort of the reason for the subtitle going inside his career via interviewing all those collaborators so I hope that um, everybody or most people will uh, find that the
1: contents live up to the title I don't think there'd be many people that would sort of be disappointed. Like, you do play it safe, I have to say. You, you sort of lay things out, you play it quite safe, but you offer so much detail. Like Jason said, the timelines are fantastic. I thought you're, like Jason mentioned also, you covered the 93 allegations and uh, the 2003-2005 Um, drama you covered that really well because it's a really tricky topic to cover you sort of didn't get bogged down in the detail you didn't pussyfoot around with oh did he do it did he not like some other people sort of subtly Mm. put into their work Um, you just laid it out because you didn't dwell on it it sort of you read through it and you got it and you understood it and you could see quite clearly what was actually happening in both those instances so i thought you handled that really well i didn't want to put in my own opinion
3: because uh, well, who cares about what i think i wanted to sort of separate my opinions on things and just present the way things really were rather than me thinking you know what, what does the author think did he do it didn't he blah 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 who cares you know what my opinion is at the end of the day I mean and why should they
1: and um, i think as a if you're a Michael Jackson fan, we already know what your opinion is anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I
3: wanted to detach
1: myself from, you know, unless you're
3: a collaborator who who's known him for years, then there's no reason why you should, you know, stick in your own opinions in these things. You sort of let the collaborators write the book or the lead
1: lead it. I read this question in an interview that you did and I loved it. So I'm actually going to pinch it myself and ask it here also if you had the chance to meet and talk to Michael, what three questions would you ask him, and why?
3: Yes, um, well, I'll start off with repeating the ones that I did use, um,
1: and then maybe yeah, adding please, a couple more. That was, and, um, that
3: was great. My first one: Which three unreleased songs do you wish to complete? Because we've heard plenty of you know Michael's unreleased music, but. We want to know which, was, which one was his favourites of the ones that didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't have told, <laughs> given anything away, obviously, but um, it just would have been great to, to hear, hear which you know three or maybe mm-hmm. more unreleased songs that you know, he really wished to complete. But we did manage to catch a glimpse of that list mm. that he so you know tragically wrote and left on his mirror in Carolwood. I suppose that sort of gave us an idea. To which tracks he was still thinking about. But that question would lead me on to the next one. Would you want any of your unreleased music to be released, you know, after you pass? That may may have given the estate some sort of guidance, at least. It's almost a shame that no one did ask him that outright, because that would have solved a lot of these issues, I presume. But um, you know, he never did answer that in his in his lifetime. But like I said, although we can't say for sure, I do have a feeling his answer would have been no. The next one was is there anything you would change about your career? But he did do a, a little 50th birthday inter- TV you know, interview. Well, it was on TV, but um, it was for a phone call from his Vegas property. And um, he was asked that. And he, he just said, all he said was, the best is yet to come. But it would have been fascinating to hear you know, what he thought about certain topics that had happened previously, especially what happened with Sony and Invincible. And you know, if there is anything he would have done differently to crack the... Uh, movie industry so yeah those three definitely somebody i did a a live facebook question and answer session a couple of weeks ago i'm actually going to upload the facebook page and youtube etc for those who missed it but somebody asked a good question do you think you could write a book about michael's lyrical content and is that something you're going to embark on next and my answer was no i couldn't write a book about you know the, the lyrics of michael's songs because michael was the songwriter well for at least you know 90 percent of the songs obviously he co-wrote some of the songs or for example man in the mirror thriller weren't written by him but um only the songwriter really can you know write about the lyrics because they may mean something that you know we may think those lyrics mean something and michael may say you know no they mean something else only really michael could have written such a book so i suppose if i was able to ask him some more questions. Um, it would be about the lyrics of you know, songs such as Stranger in Moscow, some of those, you know, especially, I think, lyrics from the History album, because oh, the way Michael was feeling, yeah, when he wrote those lyrics, even Morphine, you know, what, where was, I never managed to you know, dig out where, where was, when exactly did Michael write Morphine? just things like that definitely questions about the lyrics
1: i think um hearing about the lyrics from michael himself would have been just incredible one day Mm. i think and we always talk about when he did tv interviews and things like that it's such a shame that no one ever asked him that question like Mm. tell me about the lyrics of this song and what does this mean and they never ever got into that and now, we don't have the answers to those questions, and we never really will from the songs that he wrote. But even the songs that he didn't write that he sang, his meaning behind when he was putting all of his effort into singing them could have been something completely different as well. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, there were a couple of cracking interviews um, that Michael did when promoting history. Um,
3: yes, a couple of cracking long sort of internet chat interviews that he did, which explained, which was very helpful for Invincible. Which, you know, and obviously coming from Michael's mouth is what you want in terms of lyrics, etc. But you know, explain he explained about unbreak, unbreakable and invincible and the meaning behind those, and why he chose Invincible as the title, and what he, why he loved that song, Unbreakable. So there were a couple, but like you said, nowhere near enough.
1: Thank you so much for answering that question again on the show for our listeners. A question that we ask pretty much all of our guests is something that we then often play again, maybe at the end of the year or certain events. Is how do you think Michael should be remembered? It's, just, it's a it's a cracking question. It's,
3: <laughs> it is. God, yeah. It's the I've done so many interviews. It's one of the hardest to answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a good thing though. You you wanna you wanna challenge the interviewees, eh? <laughs> Yeah. There's so, different, so many different elements that can be remembered. Obviously, a lot of people are going to say, you know, Michael should be remembered for his music, for thriller, for Bad, dangerous, what have you, on stage performances, dancing ability. I think Michael Jackson should be remembered for his personality because that personality helped to drive who he was and how successful he became. You know, I interviewed 65 collaborators, and 90% of them said that Michael Jackson was the nicest person they'd ever met. And I think that together with elements of his personality where he was slightly ruthless, um, very ambitious, I think putting those together created a perfect storm of making Michael Jackson become the success, the enigma, the mysterious character that we know. I think definitely he should be remembered for his personality because no other superstar will ever have a similar personality and there will never be another Michael Jackson. So I think he should be remembered for
1: his qualities as a human. That's a good answer. Mm, there so you go. there you go. Thank you. I'm glad that you thought about it and I'm glad you could answer it. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem.
0: So, Mike, we've we've read the book and we love it so much. We've been talking about it for over an hour. But the listeners that would like to get it, where can they buy your book?
3: The main ways of getting it would be through Amazon, um, obviously either in Kindle version, which is still only one fifty nine, well, fifty nine or dollars. Um, so the Kindle version is still on the promotional offer for now. But Amazon would be the main way, obviously Barnes & Noble as well. I'm still, unfortunately, waiting for the iBooks version, which is very frustrating. But as soon as it's on iBooks, I will be sure to let everybody know. But um, Amazon will be the main way. If, um, if you want a signed copy, you can order that through my website, makingmichael.co.uk. But um, yeah, Amazon a non-signed copy or signed copy through my website but I'll be sure to let everybody know when it's out on iBooks
0: okay and now that you mentioned your website what other ways can people reach you
3: very you know very accessible um, Twitter Facebook um, email through uh, my website or info at makingmichael.co.uk I was very frustrated um, during you know writing this book when emailing certain people and I don't like it when people aren't accessible so I'm always happy to answer any questions you know, about either about Michael or about, about the book. I'm always open to answering anything, so that's no problem at all. Um, yeah, just tweet me, private Facebook message, or email me even info at makingmichael.co.uk and I'll try and answer, you know, everything as much as I can.
1: Um, of course, on Twitter, your handle is Mike MikeSmolcombe1, all one word. So that's how you can find Mike over on Twitter. What's next for Mike Smalkom? I'm just I'm am I'm seeing this through first
3: because I I've, I've spent you know blood, blood, sweat, and tears doing this book. So I want to I want to get the word out about it and you know try and garner as many reviews as I can. Always very grateful for any reviews. For now, for the next few months, I'm gonna you know really try and get the word out about this and hopefully you know, see see what reaction it gets. I mean, very happy so far and. I, I do obviously. That was, you know, the big aim for me was to try and, you know, please as many people as I can with it, and try and present, you know, as much new information as I can. You know, I don't care about you know the commercial aspect of this. I care about you know, doing myself justice, Michael Jackson justice, and just it's about the art for me. I'm trying to reach as many people as I can with it, and hopefully, you know, educate some some people on some new things about Michael. So I'm not I'm not really looking beyond this at the moment. Um, You know, I'd love, obviously, I love writing, I love research, and I'll definitely be doing more books in the future, no doubt about it. But um, I will have to think hard about what subject or if if a subject comes to mind. I mean, I have thought about it a little bit, and I'd like to do some... um, like to do something about west coast hip-hop in the 90s and uh you know the era of dr drain snoop dogg tupac and um you know that that era would be fantastic to write a book about but we'll see (laughs) people have joked that i should do prince next but um can safely say i won't be doing that one um (laughs) in prince did he had 39 studio albums in his if i wanted to replicate what i've done with this book with prince it would be impossible physically impossible it would take 20 years because prince recorded 39 studio albums
1: he was prolific wasn't he very much so they were almost like mirror images like opposites in in a number of ways and then on parallel journeys in some other ways it was yeah it's incredible to think about yeah i mean i love some of prince's
3: music um phenomenal guitarist phenomenal songwriter and just just perform like obviously completely different on stage to michael but also a fantastic performer live performer but i think you know michael wasn't prolific in terms of as we know studio albums and i almost think every time now that an album reaches 25 years you know there's a big thing about it because michael's albums were all so big you know we all know off the wall thriller bad dangerous history invincible and obviously a couple in between such as blood on the dance floor but you know can you name all of 39 of princes albums <laughs> <laughs> That's it. whereas each of michael's is a blockbuster and I think that's the way Michael wanted it. I think that's the, the biggest difference. That Michael sort of wanted to keep it, you know, quality over quantity.
1: Well, again, I would just like to sort of wrap it up and to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, sorry that we've kept you up so late into the morning over there in England. But thank you. I've had a really awesome conversation and we've learned a lot and I can't wait for the listeners to hear this. So thank you so much, Mike. Ah, oh, No problem at all. Yeah, it's been
3: great fun. I just hope um, the book is, uh, you know, everybody can learn lots of
1: new information. That, that is my goal. Absolutely. So Mike Smallcombe, author of Making Michael, Inside the Career of Michael Jackson, if you have read the book, if you're getting the book, please do a review. It's so important for authors that you go on Amazon or whatever site and review the book. So it helps with the the visibility of the book. It gives people an idea. So give your honest opinions. And it's really important. And we really would hope that our listeners, once they've read the book, would go and review it on whatever site or place where they've got it so please we do encourage that of course um, the website again is makingmichael.co.uk is that correct Mike
3: yeah that's still, that's it
1: makingmichael.co.uk wonderful so head there to you can buy the book there and read more about Mike and the book of course you can find us at themjcast.com we're on Twitter Instagram and Facebook as the MJCast we're over on Tumblr, the mjcast.tumblr.com. We are available on Stitcher and iTunes, and of course, any of the Android podcasting apps. We're over on YouTube and email us at the mjcast at icloud.com. You know we love getting your emails and hearing feedback from the show, so email us. Let us know if you enjoyed this interview. Email Mike. Let him know what you thought of the interview and what you thought of his book. I'm sure he'd very much appreciate that as well.
3: Yeah, I love any correspondence, any questions. I'm always happy to answer. And like you said, any reviews, honest reviews, good, bad, whatever, it's you know, it's what you think is uh, yeah, very much important no matter what it is. So that'd be fantastic.
1: Well, congratulations on your first book. Um, I do hope it's a big success. I really enjoyed reading it and I hope our listeners do as well. Jason, I wanted to say thank you for being our mission control today. We were pretty lucky. We only had one call dropout. <laughs> so thank you very much for your technological help and filling in for Jamin today. And I have to say, Jason, you came up with some pretty great questions as well.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me about this book. It's just awesome. I have so many other questions, but there's just not much time left. But (laughs) It was a great book, a great read. Definitely recommend it. And it's going to be a go-to one to get some facts
1: for people. I really recommend it.
3: Any questions that you do have, then I'm always happy to answer.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, Jamin will be back in the next episode, and I would say myself as well, hopefully without this cold. So, yeah, thank you for listening to episode 31 of the MJ cast. Michael on. Cheers.